Hey, what's up, everybody? On this week's Sport Light Podcast, we talked to former NBA basketball player and BYU great Michael Smith. We talk about the E4A principles and, and what he's learned in regard to those important principles. We also talk about parenting and sports. He gives some advice to parents who have young people who play sports. We even get into his time with the Celtics and what he learned from the great Larry Bird, and he tells some great Larry Bird stories. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Sportlight Podcast for parents, coaches, and athletes. The Sportlight refers to the time in an athlete's life when they have increased ability to affect the culture around them and the increased opportunity to learn life's lessons through sports. This podcast aims to help parents and coaches capitalize on their athletes' precious time in the Sportlight. The Sportlight Podcast is brought to you by Especially for Athletes program. Well, Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate you so much and all that you've done for us, that especially for athletes, your support and your voice. And we love having you on the podcast. We're excited for everyone to hear hear your thoughts on the principles that we teach. Chad, it's a pleasure to be here. As you know, the cause is very dear to my heart, so I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's fun. This will be exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So I want to start off with with a question. You've you've accomplished a lot in your life. I'm sure you were very decorated high school athlete. Get a full ride scholarship to Brigham Young University, and there you you were an All American. You earned All American there. Got drafted number 13 overall pick by the Boston Celtics. Is that right? Yes, they've regretted that day ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, for some of us, you know, 13 is my favorite number, but that, that's a childhood dream of of so many, I mean, hundreds of thousands of kids. Maybe we could just start with that. What was it like? I'm sure as a young man growing up, you dreamed of that. But on that day when you were going to be selected in the first round and you knew you were going to be selected in the first round, and then you hear... I mean, this was not just the Boston Celtics in general. This was the Boston Celtics, the the Larry Bird, the Danny Ainge, the, the I mean, the Boston Celtics that we all still talk about to this day. What was it like to hear your name called on that day? You know, it was a little bit bittersweet. And number one, A, of course, it was thrilling. It was uh, the culmination of a lot of hard work. Uh, dreams that I, I don't know that I knew they would come true, but, um, recently I was with a teammate, a BYU teammate, and he reminded me that we used to talk about it all the time. And so I was like, I don't remember talking about it, but he goes, yeah, it's the reason you'd stay after practice and shoot for hours and hours and hours. And so I don't know, uh, Shad, I was a fastidious kid and, uh, but super disciplined. And so I don't come from athletic parents. And although I think that's a misnomer, right? Because I, I just think they didn't participate in sports. But my dad was an engineer, so he had kind of a, a right brain thinker, you know, very analytical, very methodical, always had a plan. And so he always gave me little plans. Like he was, hey, I'll, I'll make the best basket in the world on our house, on a roof. And I'll make it perfect standards, but and then I'll draw a court and I'll paint that in. But it's up to you to go shoot, you know, a thousand shots a day. And that's about all the sports direction my dad gave me, except that he told me 
how to handle teammates and how to handle referees, which was so interesting. But he was in sales. And so he taught me, you know, whether the referee is right or wrong, he is. And so you just need to come to grips with it and then use that knowledge to your benefit. He says, never upstage a referee, never throw your arms, never react adversely to his call. He said, but pull him aside secretly during a free throw and just say, hey, I thought you missed the last one. You know, just keep an eye on this. He's tugging on my jersey when I shoot. And just little things like that. Yeah. But... Uh, a fantastic dad because he was supportive. And even though he didn't know what to tell me about maybe what I was doing wrong, shooting or throwing a, a football or hitting a baseball, he was at every game. So I knew I was loved and supported. And then you have my mom behind the scenes, the one making the pregame meals. And my mom was a bit of a go-getter and my mom's a violinist and an artist. So I think I came out with probably... Uh, the fine motor skills of my mom, like I was very dexterous from very young age. I, I, I was never the strongest or the fastest, but I could always, like at age five, I remember in the street running full speed and catching a football over my head, you know, just like looking back this way and catching balls. And and I didn't think it was anything different, but I was, I was always super coordinated. Mm-hmm. And I could always throw a ball and hit a target. And, and for my dad, I got height. And, and strength. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a weird combination, Chad. I'm like 6'10", but I was, you know, more of a small forward, which was kind of unique in the day. So I was built a little bit like a, like a Dirk Nowitzki, maybe a Larry Bird, kind of a, a, a poor man's Kevin Durant. I was tall and slender. I could shoot and pass and shoot from outside and handle the ball. And those things all helped. And I worked hard and uh, yeah, uh, I worked out with the teams who drafted between eight and 16 prior to the NBA. And some of those workouts were actual workouts. And some of those were just, uh, like mental tests and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, weird written tests you take to see what kind of personality you had. And others were coordination tests. It was really weird back in the day, but like Portland had the 12th pick and they brought me in and had me shoot for two hours. Boston had me in, they picked 13th and they didn't, uh, they didn't have me work out at all, but I went to dinner with their ownership and watched a practice or a summer workout. It was really weird. Hmm. And then Golden State picked 14 and they were in a first round matchup with the Utah Jazz. And so they were here in town playing the Jazz. If you remember back then, that Don Nelson coach team and Chris Mullen and those guys, Mitch Richmond, they beat the Jazz. Jazz were either the one, two, or three seed in the West, and and that funky, quirky Don Nelson team beat them, and and the Warriors had me up to their hotel rooms, Don Nelson, their general manager, meeting the players that during that series every time they were in town, hmm. and I think it either went six or seven games, so they definitely were here three or four times, so I thought for sure I was going to be picked fourteen by Golden State. They just had spent the most time. They thought I was the most unique player that I would fit into a Nelson system where I could play outside. And he posted up guards and had Manute Bull shoot threes. And it was just weird. Uh, (laughs) But then Boston showed very little interest. And when it came time to it, they chose me 13th. And so I was like, what? Like I thought I was going to go 14 to Golden State or 15 Denver. There was a shot I was going to go nine to Washington. They ended up taking a guy named Tom Hammonds who played probably 10 years in the league. He was also a, 
a forward. Anyway, more detail than you want, but it was a, a, a thrilling day because if you asked me at age 16 or 17 which sport I would play, I didn't even know then because I was a football quarterback and a I was a baseball pitcher and a volleyball setter along with a basketball player. <laughs> but it just it just kind of organically went the route of basketball. So yeah, that's I cool. Feel blessed. I feel blessed. I I was never a great NBA player. I did get votes for all rookie team, but I never never made an all-star team. We never won a championship. And I, I look back and there's there's regret on my part. And I'm like, ugh, my career was just so blah. And yet, you know, I'm now 58 years old. So anyone who knows that I was a first round pick, they think it's the coolest thing in the world from my kids to my kids' friends to the sixth graders I coach. They're like, no way. That's the greatest thing in the world. And so they're helping me to look back with, with blessings and gratitude. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And I, I love what you said about your parents. We have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast and coaches and, so there have been a few that have said like you that man my parents weren't like all into sports so it almost made them better support because of the fact that sometimes these parents get over the top it's it's their dreams it's not their kids dreams do you have anything True. more to say about that to to parents like what did you learn how your parents parented you during that time when you started to get attention for all the sports you were playing and it seemed like you'd be playing in college and things what did you learn that maybe parents that are listening to this could hear about how to support your children in a way that would be most helpful for them it's a great topic and I also have a podcast and it's on sports parenting. And so this question comes up a lot and we've interviewed over the course of a year and a half, uh, a, a lot of professional athletes. And so my question to them is how were you parented? And now how are you parenting? And I find that I parent my children of which I have 10 very much like I was parented. I'm not the pushy dad. I'm not the one requiring my kids to be great at sports. I am the dad providing the opportunities. Like if you want to play this sport, then I will provide that, right? I will provide, you know, the golf instruction, or I will provide club volleyball, or I will provide, you know, these things. I will facilitate that, but I'm not the one saying, you know, doggone it, you're not working hard enough. Get your buttons out of bed. Let's go. You know, I'm not that parent. And my parents were not that way. My mom was all about commitment. So uh, my dad like was working and like I said, didn't know much about sports, but he was a traveling salesman. So he found it within his schedule to always be at my games. So again, I knew I was loved and supported, but they weren't pushing me into these sports. And I've come to the conclusion that if you're going to be great at anything, it's got to come from within. And so like I have a, you know, 10 kids, like I told you, but I have a 15-year-old golfer girl and I have a 15-year-old boy. They're twins. He's a basketball player. Now they're musicians and dancers first, but they are playing these sports. And every once in a while, my boy will say to me, dad, I want to be great. I want to be great at basketball. I got to get better. And I said, okay. I said, it's got to come from you. 
you know, it can't come from me. I said, but I'm there. He goes, well, what does that mean? I said, all you got to do is get me out of bed. So if you come wake me up at six and you want to go play for an hour and want me to rebound for you and help, just come get me out of bed. I'll take you whenever you want. And, you know, honestly, between me and you, Shad, that doesn't happen very often. So, you know, he'll say to me, Dad, Dad, tomorrow for sure I'm going. I'm coming to wake you up at 7. I said, okay, I'm not waking you up. And if he doesn't wake me up, I don't I don't go get him up. Like it's, I tell this to the parents of the kids I coach, it's got to come from them. You know, um, you can facilitate those matters, but if they're going to be great, it's going to be the amount of time that they spend between the age of really 13 and 17. Like if that amount of time spent on their craft is different than the kids they're competing against, you're going to see improvement. You're going to see results. You'll see progress and a chance. And I think you got to be blessed with certain things and get a little lucky. Um, But just one quick story. I was nine years old, Chad, nine, uh, playing Little League Baseball. Okay, so I've played one year of what in my area of Southern California was called the Continental League. That was first year. That was an eight-year-old. That's, you know, normal pitch. You're not hitting off a tee. The next year, I should have played in what was called the National League as a nine-year-old. But in the tryouts, they chose me because I was tall and coordinated, could throw a ball pretty good. They chose me to the major leagues as a nine-year-old, really nine-and-a-half-year-old. That meant I was going to play four years in that same league. Mm-hmm. All the way to 12, basically Little League, right? You've heard of the Little League World Series that went through basically sixth grade and age 12. So here I am, four grades younger than the kids, and I'm drafted by Earl Moore and the Tigers of the American League of the Hacienda Heights Little League in Southern California. And after about three weeks, I was playing two innings of right field as a nine year old. I'm getting one at bat a game, and I'm usually striking out, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to one practice. My mom drove me, and I just sat in the car and pouted, and I said, I'm not getting out of the car. And she said, oh, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. I can't hit. I don't play. I don't do anything. Uh, this year stinks. You know, you can imagine. That's a big gap between a 9-year-old and the 12-year-olds. Way different than, say, being a sophomore in high school or a freshman and being good enough to play varsity. This is a bigger gap at that age. And my mom sat there in the car and said, okay, then we're going to sit here for the two hours of practice. And all of them are going to come past the car at the end and see that you were here. And I'm going to let the coach know you were here. And I was like, mom. So after about 20 minutes of pouting, I got out, went to practice, you know, and never missed another practice after that. And she taught me at that moment – Listen, you 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 commit to something, you're going to do it, and you're going to give it your best. Well, lo and behold, at the end of my ninth year, you know, that year of Little League, the coach gave me the chance to pitch and be the starting pitcher. So in that starting pitcher outing, I pitched as a nine-year-old, got the win, and actually went two for four at the plate. So I got my first two hits of the season. <laughs> the rest was history, right? The next year, I was a 10-year-old, and I thought, oh, I got this. In the 11-year-old year, I led the league in home runs, and, you know, it just, you know how it goes. But yeah, um, I don't know. If parents are listening out there, uh, my advice is let them play multiple sports till they figure out which one. 
Number two, encourage them, love them, support them, be there for them, especially in the down days as opposed to the great days. And number three, um, I don't know, encourage them or give them the opportunity that it's got to come from them. If you're driving them, you know, to the age of 13 and you're still the one driving that engine, I don't think it's going to work. But if it can come from them, they got a chance. Yeah, there's a great book, Atomic Habits. You've probably heard of it by James Clear. He was a played college baseball and so he uses a lot of sports analogies but one of the things that he points out is that at a young age if parents will instead of trying to push their kid into the sport that they think their kid should play if they let them play a wide variety of sports you know those five six seven eight nine ten year old type sports then what happens is they find whatever it is that they have a passion for that they want to it's not work to play it you know i'm sure i was a lot like you that any second on a baseball field was entertaining to me any any time playing basketball i love baseball and basketball so much that my parents had to call me inside at night you know from shooting and oh yeah and, and inside from playing tennis ball baseball with my friends but it's it's giving them the leeway during those formative years you know the single digit years of letting them try a bunch of stuff and they're going to find the thing that they just love to do that you have to control them from doing and then ages 13 to 17 they can learn more specific skills and weightlifting and all those things because they want to be great at it themselves you didn't push them into it but they discovered it and they want to be great at it. And I think that was a, that was a cool concept in his book. He, he discovered that a lot of people who truly become great did a lot of things when they were young and found the thing that they were passionate about that then they could put all that time and effort and love and energy and passion into. I remember talking to Dale Murphy. If you know the name Dale Murphy, he was the league MVP 19, maybe 73 and 74. He's a center fielder for the Braves and a gold glove player and many time all-star, maybe played 15 years in the major leagues. Big behemoth guy, right? Like I'm six foot 10, I'm slender. This guy's, you know, six foot four or five, shoulders as wide as, you know, cupboards. And one of his boys, I think he had many boys, was playing baseball and at age, I don't know, 12 or 13, he was watching his boy play and he he watched his boy 3-2 three, two, and 3-2 three, two count, two outs in one of the late innings, just smash a ball over the fence. And Dale said to me, one of the great parenting moments of my life, you know, is that here this boy had finally figured out, you know, how to wait on his pitch and just, you know, and Dale's talking intricacies of pitching pitching and hitting and baseball and they got in the car and they started driving home <laughs> i don't remember the boy's name i should but anyway dale says I, 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 i'm so proud of you son and he goes into this long explanation of like like you worked that count and you worked that pitcher and you waited till he finally threw you a fastball right over the meat of the plate and you just delivered that's so cool you know and the son's like yeah you know dad it was okay and he's like, okay, what do you mean? And he goes, I've never told you this, Dad, but I don't really like baseball. I like football a lot better. 
And it was like one of those seminal moments, right? Like just yeah. like, you know, here I am as a dad waiting for you to smash one. And it's much more to the parent than it is to the kid. And, the, yeah. and he ended up being a like a, I think, a Division One tight end and you know, a little snip at a time in the in the NFL and all that. So yeah. he, he definitely found his niche. But yeah, I think that's key. You know, it's got to come from the person, the the player, the boy, the girl playing those sports, and and maybe it's not sports, right? That that my fifteen year old I tell you about, if he has two hours of free time. He's downstairs on his keyboard, writing music, hmm. playing music, writing music. He'll go to practice. You know, he'll go to his games. He'll play hard, tries his best. But if he's got two hours of free time, I hear him down there on his music. And I'm like, oh, that's his passion. Yeah. You know, we've both, we both have a mutual respect for Henry Eyring, whose father was a... Uh, world-renowned physicist uh, he tells the story of going down in his father's basement and his father had just blackboards all over the basement and he would do these physics problems that would wrap around the whole basement and one time he had his son who he called Hal who we know as Henry Eyring now but um but and he brought him down there and he he did this problem with him and and how got stuck and he said okay i want you to think about this all day i want you to go and think about this we'll come back same time tomorrow so they came back the same time and he said okay what do you think and he's like i don't know and he said well have you been thinking about this and and hal said no i haven't thought about it one second and he said you're never going to be a great physicist which at the time kind of broke Hal's heart, right? But then he said, you need to find something that you're so passionate about that you think about it when there's nothing else to think about. And and Hal went on and True. for him that became organizational behavior. He loved how systems work and how things, you know, people work together to, to create great outcomes. And and I, I think I've thought about that a lot with my own children, you know, how can I help them discover the thing that they love so much that they think about when there's, they think about it when there's nothing else to think about. Like with your son in music, when he has two spare hours, he's not out in the driveway, he's down on his keyboard and that's okay. And that's wonderful. Then they can, when they find that thing, now they could put all the time and energy and passion toward it that you and I both know there are some anomalies, you know, there are some freaks of nature when it comes physically or whatever. But most of the people who become successful, they become successful because they found the thing that they think about, that they're passionate about. When there's nothing else to do, that's where their mind goes. And that's where their energy and effort and passion goes. So I've always felt like, and I could be wrong with this. Not So this is the opinion of Mike, Mike Smith. But given that I don't have uh, any real vices, right? I don't have any, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of a, I'm a good guy. I'm a nice guy. I'm going to try and do my best at both things. 
mm-hmm. at everything. Given that, and given the way I was raised, I think it's really easy to be a decent husband and a decent father. But I tend to think it's really hard and takes a ton of effort to be a great spouse and a great father or a great parent. And it goes back to what you're saying, like all these kids come out just a little bit differently, mm-hmm. right? They, they're wired differently. They react to discipline differently. They come out with different skills, different talents, different body types, different height, different weight. And it's kind of up to us, at least initially, to help them navigate through this world and find maybe where they might be best and help them discover those talents. And then as they get to these formative years, can you push the right buttons in the right way with each kid? And and Chad, I'm ta- I'm honestly disclosing that I I have not been great at this. Like I try and I could have done better. I'm trying now with the last couple. I still could do better. And I guess you never stop being a parent because the journey continues. And so even though maybe they're past their sports years and their college years, now they're entering the next phase of life, which might be occupational and parental themselves. Can you still subtly push them, guide them in the right way so that they discover not your way, but the best way for them? And so... That's a hard one for me. Uh, I deal with some regret in that area because I feel like it's not easy. Again, easy for me to be average because it's the way I'm wired. I'm going to try. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be supportive and loving. Really hard. takes a ton of effort to be great at those things. And I think that's our most important calling in life is to be great at being a spouse or a friend or a sibling, certainly a parent. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. And I think we all feel that. I think any parent who would say, you know, Shad, Mike, I'll be honest with you. I am an amazing parent. (laughs) (laughs) I got it all figured out. (laughs) Yeah. I I love the saying that humility is the weirdest trait in the world. As soon as you discover you have it, you don't. Right. And so, so that's true. Well, Mike, I I was wondering with all the things that you've accomplished, you know, and that you've, uh, you know, the sports accolades, and and I haven't even mentioned I mentioned in the in the you know bring into this episode, but you went on and had a broadcasting career with the Clippers, and now we currently see you here in Utah uh, with the Jazz and doing some broadcasting there, and and ten children and. And I, I know you're a accomplished golfer as well. And, but I'm just wondering with all of that and looking back, what are you most proud of? Hmm. That's a really good question. Well, if we, if we just said athletically or, or sports wise, there's, There's five things that come to mind. Number one is a high school football championship. I'm the quarterback. I was basically talked into playing quarterback for a very uh, football-centered high school. And I was a basketball player and a volleyball player. And they convinced me to give it a shot. And I did. 
and we lost one game in four years. Mm-hmm. So I don't know who the equivalent of that is locally, if that's Corner Canyon today or, you know, Skyline 35 years ago or, you know, I, I don't know who that is today. But uh, but that's who we were. And we went undefeated my senior year. And I broke every record in California as a quarterback. Now, all I did was do what the coach told me to do. <laughs> So he just told me, read there if he's covered, read there if he's covered. If he's take your third read, if he's covered, take off and run or throw it out of bounds. So I just just ask real quick, were you 6'10"? I was. (laughs) I just wish I could see some tape on I was 205 pounds. I'm now 225 pounds, which is what I played at in the NBA. But uh, I was skinny. But on my left flanker, I had 6'5", on my right flanker, I had 6'4", and my tight end was 6'4". And we were not a private high school. We just all, these guys, all great athletes, all coincided at the same time. This guy, my flanker went D1. My other wide receiver went D1 as a kicker. He was a great soccer player, too. And then my tight end was the ninth pick in the baseball draft, and he turned down all his full rides in football. So we won a high school championship and it, really the equivalent of a state title because it was all of Southern California at the highest level. So that was fun. Um, number two, I won a gold medal on Team USA. And so these are the under 20 world championships for basketball. So somewhere in a box, I should have it behind me, but I I, I don't know where it is because we moved recently. But uh, I have a gold medal on the Team USA Under-20 World Championships. And that, that to me, was just such a thrilling two-week run. And I was 18, so I was one of two 18-year-olds on the team. The other 10 guys were 19, had all played one year of college ball. I was fresh from high school. That's a thrill for me. Um, I don't know, being drafted in the first round of the NBA – meant a lot to me because I think I was the first I think I was the first to go on a mission for the church and be a first round draft pick in the NBA. Hmm. And so I don't know that people before me didn't do it on purpose, but I think I was the first to do that. And so uh, that to me means way more today than it did maybe then, right? I just I just kind of felt like if I put God first, he would bless me. And he did. Um, you know how in the NBA, uh, if a guy's a great shooter, he can have what's called a 50-40-90 year? 50% from the field, 40 from three, 90 from the line. Mm-hmm. There's only been like nine of those in the history of the NBA, like Bird, Kevin Durant, Steph, Curry, uh, Reggie Miller did it. Dirk Nowitzki did it. Steve Nash did it three times to tell you how good a shooter he was. And I think Mark Price and maybe one other that I can't remember. Um, For my entire college career, I'm like 10 made free throws shy of shooting 50, 40, 90 for my whole career. I don't know what happened to me my junior year, but I only shot like 84.5% my junior year. And it crushed me. But I think that would be pretty cool to say, you know, I shot 50, 40, 90 for an entire college career. Maybe, do you have any eligibility? 
Just stop it. <laughs> you could come back and just say, hey, just the end of games when they're fouling. I just, I just need to get up my. Oh my gosh! I, I need to make, I need to make 190 out of 200 to erase that. And, and you mentioned golf. Maybe the, maybe the coolest one of late is I, I never touched a golf club before 25. I never picked it up seriously till 34. And on my second attempt this summer, I qualified for the United States Senior Amateur. And so I think that's, I think it's pretty cool because. That game has little or nothing to do with athletic ability and way more to do with uh, a repetitive motion and, and figuring out the intricacies of a game that's just so difficult. I think way more difficult than basketball or, or any of the other sports. So yeah. athletically, those are my answers. Um, I don't know those would pale considerably to the things I'm most proud of. And that would be uh, my loving wife and family and children and a, and a love for, for God. I think those all come way before, you know, my five really cool accomplishments in sports and, and broadcasting. I don't know. I love broadcasting. So that's, that's, that's a completely different topic, but very fun. That's cool. So, so let's do a rapid fire here, Mike. Then we'll close with a few other questions. I can't leave you without asking some questions about Larry Bird and your experiences with him. And I would love to know also about, about your podcast and some other things that you're involved in. But here's some rapid fire questions. You ready? What have you personally learned about winning the hour, time management, the price of being great. If you had just 60 seconds of fire to tell a young person, hey, look, here's how you win the hour. Here's how you truly become great. Here's how you really prioritize. What would you say to a young person? I would say you're in control of your own destiny. So you, you figure out what you're good at and then figure out where those talents lie and then magnify those talents to the best of your ability. And that, that, that comes from within that that could be planning your entire week on a Sunday afternoon and just saying, okay, here are my snippets of time that aren't practice related, school related or other activities where I could pay the price, work on individual skills to make me better at that craft than the next person, because heaven knows it takes work to be great at whatever you do. It, it really does. And if you pay that price, You'll see the results. And I think the other thing I'll say really quickly, Shad, is you can't fake confidence. Confidence comes from actually watching yourself perform and succeed at a certain skill. So I didn't walk into my senior year of college and lead the nation in free throw shooting because I just thought about it. I actually drilled under pressure. I'm going to make every free throw every time. I'm going to make every free throw. Boom, boom, boom. Hundreds of hundreds of hundreds. And But it can happen. Awesome. Your, your answer reminded me of Michael Ashler. He has this great quote. The bad news is that time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. <laughs> and, and I love the you know, that concept, sit down on a Sunday afternoon, look at that unclaimed time and, and fly your plane, <laughs> you know, otherwise you're going to get, I, I tell kids all the time when I talk to them, 
you know, that day after the championship is won, the state championships. I have a daughter who plays tennis right now in high school. The day after, that's when the next championship starts to be won. No one sees it. It's crowned in front of everyone, but it's one in those moments where young people are saying, okay, here's my time. Like you said, I love that concept. Here's the time I have available to me. I can use that to improve my craft. Awesome. Awesome stuff. Okay. What would you tell a young person about the principle of resilience and how important it is to be resilient if you truly want to become great in life? It's just your success is not going to come right away. And so resilience to me is in spite of maybe some hiccups or some things along the way that don't happen great, just stick with it, right? One of the great quotes of all time, if you have an impossible or an improbable task in front of you, the more you work at it, that task does not become any easier. It's the same difficult. But your ability to accomplish that task or perform it with greater ease does improve with time and resilience. I became, uh, through hard work, the number one quarterback in the state of California my high school year. But if I showed you the film of my first game playing tackle football my freshman year, you would laugh your tail off. We won the game, fortunately, and I threw five touchdowns in that game. So you'd say, oh, wow, you were good from the start. No, I fumbled the snap five times from center in that game. And we lost three of them. (laughs) I was scared. I'd never played tackle football. I played football on the street with my buddies. I was petrified, you know, and I was pulling out too quick. And the center would snap the ball and hit his butt, not my hands. They would fall on the ground. They'd jump on it. My coach was just screaming at me. But with time, I became not only good at grabbing the snap from center, but I I worked to overcome those fears. And so the only reason I tell you that is sometimes it's not great at the beginning. And sometimes you only make six out of 10, your first quantifiable set of free throws. But eventually it's seven and eight and nine. And eventually it's 19 out of 20. And eventually it's 90 out of 100. Eventually it's 98 out of 100. Maybe one day you'll make 157 in a row. You know, what's who's to stop you? Hmm. So I always say before, before the body can achieve, the mind has to either perceive or conceive. You have to see it or think it, conceptualize or perceive it happening before you can actually do it. So see it, then go perform. And along the way, you can get there. Awesome. Awesome. I love that quote too. You stick to something, it's going to get easier. Not because the task got easier, but you got better. That's what resilience brings is it increases your capacity instead of stopping something right when it gets hard. So uh, that's great. That's great. What have you learned about being a fierce competitor, but doing it the right way? We would say that. What have you learned about competing without contempt, without hatred? Well, I'll just give you a little idea when you're, you know, maybe the best basketball player on your team in high school, you have a chance. But when you make it to college 
every guy there was not only the best guy in his team, but he was the best guy in his county, right? Maybe the best guy in his district or his region of his state, maybe the best in his state. And then if you're in college, you become the best in your team. It's a serious accomplishment. But you got to be the best in your conference and maybe the best in your district if you're going to get looked at by the ultimate level, the NBA level. So somewhere along the lines, there are things that have to make you stand out because as you rise up through this road of progression, you're yes, you're weeding out you know, some of the lesser players, but as you climb to the top, everyone is going to have similar skill sets. And so I always felt like the three things that might distinguish you or separate you from the others was one, your work ethic, how much you worked at your craft. Number two, your mind. Can you train your mind to be great in moments of darkness, in moments of trouble, in moments of adversity? Can you train yourself to perform under pressure, to quiet your nerves? And that's especially important in you know, sports at the highest level. Can you still be free and shoot with the same freedom you do as if you're in the gym by yourself? And then finally, the, that competition, that level of fierce competition is that you won't give up. Like, I'm going to outdo this guy, and I'm going to beat him in his craft. And it doesn't mean I'm going to play dirty, and it doesn't mean I'm going to be angry. It doesn't mean I'm going to... So I think those three, those three things are all intertwined to become great as you rise to the top, because something has to give you an edge in your mind. And... I don't know, like like recently qualifying for the U- United States Senior Amateur, I'm down to the last hole. And granted, golf is not something I've done since my childhood, but I've practiced a lot of late in spare time. Well, I come to the last hole, I can see the live scoring. The live scoring says one guy's in at three under, and this is 400 guys trimmed to 60, now 60 for two spots in the whole state of Utah. I can see the live scoring. One guy's in at three under par. He's going to make it. There's six of us at one under. And I'm on the last hole. And so it's a par five. And so I rip a drive down there. And I was happy about that because I knew I needed to make birdie. So now I'm in the fairway. I'm 249 yards out to a green that's slanted away from me. It's not a big receptive green. It's kind of a kidney-shaped green going the other way. And it's going over water. And so I'm standing over this shot, and I'm thinking, i got to make a four. If I make a four, I'm going to qualify for the United States Senior Amateur. And so I looked at my partner, who I'm not riding with, but he's playing with me. He's about three over, and he's a fantastic guy. And he says, he looks at me, and he goes, you're going for it, right? And I said, doggone right I am. And so I pulled out a five wood, and... I just stood over that ball behind it, took my line. I knew I had to cut it to hold the green. And I said, you've hit this shot 500 times in the last year. Just step up and do it. You know you can do it. And so those three things were in my mind, Shad. The competition, I, I, I knew I had to go for it. Number two, my mental acuity was there. Like I knew what I had to do to do it. And then three, I knew I'd put in the work. So I stepped up and hit the most beautiful cut five wood, started left edge of the trap, hit the green, carried the green, you know, stayed on. I two-putted for birdie, and I got in. And I could have easily laid up, wedged it on, and then I have, you know, maybe a 10-footer 
to try and make it. But I was like, no, let's go for it. Yeah. Maybe a longer answer than you wanted. But I think oh, that's great. I think as you climb to the highest level, competition is really what fuels a person, you know, and and I'm all about fair play. So I might I might teach my kids and my kids I coach the tricks of the trade, you know, not dirty tricks, but how to gain position, win position, how how to play through contact, how to what to expect from a better player. But uh that's the most fun. Uh when I can when I can at 58 I obviously can't lace them up and play basketball anymore at at a high level. I can still shoot, but I just can't run and jump like I used to, but I can certainly compete at pickleball and golf and things, and that fuels me. Yeah. That gets adrenaline flowing. That makes it fun. I love how you focus on competition because one of the things Dustin and I are concerned about, when we go around and say compete without contempt, we're saying compete without hatred, but capital C compete. <laughs> Right? Like, like we are not saying, hey, it doesn't matter who wins. In fact, people who are built like like we are, I'm sure you're built this way. If there's not a winner, I'm not really interested in in playing. Like, it's I, true. I, I, I just I can't go out and play pickleball and not care who wins. Like, I want to. I can't play Monopoly and not want to win. It's I, true. And that's what makes it fun. So yeah, compete like crazy. But you don't have to. I didn't hear anything about hatred or some some coaches. It's disappointing to me, even at the highest levels. You know, they use they use hatred or offense or someone said this about me or did this about. You know, they're looking for a reason to to feel this anger. And and part of me is like, ah, that's almost a sign of not a true competitor to me. I don't need anything to get me to want to compete. I don't need hatred to make me want to compete. I just need a game, a board game, shooting next to someone of those little basketball, you know, where there's two rims and you're trying to get the highest score. I, that's all I need. I don't need to know that that person said something about my mom or my coach or my whatever. I just need someone to compete against. And, and we try to teach that, that thrill of, competition without having to hate or demonize your opponent in order to feel competitive to me that makes you not truly competitive yeah i've been angry at myself for say a poor performance or a poor start to a game that mattered and then that fueled me so i i've had that inner anger and i'm one who who plays golf better when i'm angry i'm i'm one who plays pickleball a little better when i'm angry but not angry at another person I don't I don't feel hatred yeah. towards others uh in any way. But sometimes just like, you know, just a little self-talk, you know, come on, you're better than this. You know, in that same round of golf where I qualified, I started par par, and the next hole was just an eight iron par three. Like a simple eight iron for me is I'm gonna hit the green 95 times out of a hundred. And it was a right pin and I went for it. And I shouldn't have because it was on the right and I tried to hit it close probably because the first hole was an easy birdie hole and I made a par. I almost felt like I was behind the field. That was dumb. I should have hit this 10 feet left of the flag and tried to make a birdie. I went for this. 
it bounced long and went into a really precarious spot and it made a double bogey. And I got mad. I'm like, you idiot, what are you doing? You know? And it took me the rest of the round to get to the point I just told you about. Like it took me the rest of the next 15 holes to play them three under without a miscue to climb back from that stupid early double. Mm-hmm. So some inner self-talk I think is helpful. Uh, I'm not opposed to some inner anger at yourself, not not where you name call yourself, but just like, come on, you know, you're better than this. You can do better and get right. your butt out there and compete. Let's go win this thing. Yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. How has sports enabled you to help other people? You know our mantra of eyes up, do the work. What would you say to young people about using their position to help those around them? In my case, it's given me the opportunity to be at a lot of places, events where I could could reach out to children, to, to kids. And so whether those are little sixth graders I coach, whether those speaking at a camp, at firesides, youth conferences, uh, for whatever reason, uh, I, I've had that opportunity. And so uh, I'm, I'm forever grateful. I think sports have really formed who I am in a lot of ways. And I hope it doesn't define me, you know, the, the later stages of me, because I'd rather be defined by other things. Mm-hmm. Um, successful businessman or successful spouse or father or, or someone who cared about others, I think are much more important statements now than someone who made the NBA or whatever. But it does, I will say this, it has given me a platform just to to speak. And if kids are willing to listen, I'm always willing to share. Um, I think there's so much that can be done I, I've told you this before, and I've told Dustin this before, but in when I was in high school, uh, my mom and dad were teaching me the principles that, especially for athletes, stands for. They were. And I, I didn't know why they were doing it, and I didn't know that I caught the whole large-picture grasp of what it meant to mentor and reach out and lift others. I didn't, I don't, I'm not saying I, I did it for selfish reasons or the wrong reasons. I did it really because I wanted to be obedient. But my mom and dad would drive me to school in high school and say, hey, you've been so blessed. You know, there's got to be someone on your team today who needs a pick-me-up. <clears throat> there's got to be someone in your biology class who's having a bad day. Why don't you seek out that person? There's got to be a girl on your campus who maybe doesn't belong to the most popular group. Would you seek her out and say hello and walk her to her next class, all these things were constantly being inputted into my head because it's just the way my parents were. And and I did those things. And I don't tell you that because I want you or the audience to say, oh, he was such a great guy back in high school. No, I'm almost telling you in a way that I'm embarrassed to tell you that I, I didn't know that I was I should have been doing those things naturally and organically because I had unconditional love. And I think I was doing them because my parents encouraged me to do them. And maybe I felt a duty and an obligation to do them. Mm-hmm. But either way, I did do them. And I, I look back and 
I'm, I'm pleased that I did them. So I went to an event just two days ago, and it was a BYU alumni basketball event. So I'm gathered together with every former BYU basketball player who played basketball. And you can go back to, you know, the 70s, right, of all those who are still alive and around. And so one guy comes up to me after the event. We've had our lunch and we've watched practice and we're all going to head over to the football game. And so when he meets my wife and kids, I'm singing his praises because in his day, and he's after me, he's younger than I am, probably six years younger than I am. And he's telling my kids, you know, what a great player I was. And, And I'm telling my kids and his daughter what a great player he was. And he really was a fantastic player. He understood angles and he could shoot. And he understood these 15-foot slithering runners and bank shots. And I was like, oh, he's so gifted. Well, he then turns to my wife and kids and says the following. You know, when I was just a little 17-year-old junior and then an 18-year-old senior in high school, you know, at a local high school here in Utah, I used to wander into the Smithfield house at BYU and the guy running the pickup games was your dad. You know, he's a return missionary junior, and he's organizing all the games and making sure we played for two and a half hours. And yet he would come over to me and pick me on his team. He said, I had no business playing in these games. But he would walk over to me and say, hey, young high school, you want to play with us? Yeah, that's why I'm here. You're on my team. Let's go. And we'd go win five games in a row and hold the court. I didn't even remember it, Hmm. but he did. And he shared it with my wife and my children. And then he shared how that made him feel as a junior in high school when he was finding his way. I didn't remember doing it, Chad. Yeah. But as I look back, I'm glad I did. And I'm glad I had that spirit about me to not just you know, pick the four best college guys to be on my team so we could dominate. But I was like, you come be on my team. You need this experience. And so anyway, um, I don't know. Sports have been a great medium for me. And so uh, I've loved them since I was 10, 11 years old. I don't know why. There was no internet then. There were no cell phones. I did not have a dad who was into sports. My older brother was into basketball, five years older. My sister was a violinist. Then I come along, and I'm the kid reading the Los Angeles Times sports page cover to cover before school in the fifth grade. Yeah. I don't know why, but I did. I I can relate. I can relate. That's all I ever did and all I ever loved. So that's awesome. Okay. I got to ask you this. I I grew up idolizing Larry Bird and just watching everything he did. And you got to see Larry up close and personal and, and tell us, capture Larry Bird from Mike Smith's perspective. So he was an amazing competitor. Uh, I catch him at the end of his career that, that is – my rookie year is his 10th year. So he's played nine years. He's been MVP three times. He's been nine times first team all NBA and three championships by the time I get there in the fall of 89. 
In 88 was the one year he did not make first team all NBA, but he only played six games and he had surgery on both his heels. So only played six games the year before. So he missed whatever, 76 games. But here he was now this year was, was both good and bad for me because he had renewed youth. He had we came into camp in the best shape of his life. Larry was the kind of guy who uh, loved you and would give you the shirt off his back, but he would never let you know that. Like he was too fierce a competitor. So I knew he cared about me. I knew he liked me. We used to eat together on the road. He called me Rook or Rookie. And I know he saw a lot of himself in me. And But he never would say those things. He He just wasn't gifted linguistically or he wasn't eloquent in his you know, in his verbal treatment, you know, friendships back and forth. He just, he just couldn't express himself that way, but he was genuine. Now he also had the most confidence of anyone I'd ever seen. And he was only this much better than I was, but not at one thing. He was this much better than I was at everything. He was a better thinker. He was smarter. He was a better rebounder. He was a little bit stronger. He was a better shooter from distance. He was a better passer. You know, and I'd never met anyone my size who could outplay me at those various skills. But yet here he was, my teammate, who I guarded every day, was just a little better at everything. And it frustrated the heck out of me. But he just had the ultimate green light and the ultimate confidence. And that confidence came from his hard work. He knew that he had outworked everyone on the floor. So if he missed an opening shot, he was taking that same shot the next time down. And if he perfect example is opening day my rookie year we're playing the milwaukee bucks at the boston garden and i'm sitting next to jim paxson who's a three-time all-star he's on the bench and you know our team is dennis johnson reggie lewis robert parrish kevin McHale, larry bird those are four hall of famers and reggie lewis would have been probably had he not passed away so that's our team so the likes of Paxson and I and Joe Klein, Ed Pinkney, Kevin Gamble, we're not getting in the game, at least not right away, maybe a little bit. Very opening play, Larry gets the ball, he curls off a down screen, he catches the ball in the lane, he puts up like a left-hand running hook from 12 feet against the Bucks. He's guarded by Paul Pressey. Air ball, air ball, the opening shot of the 1989-90 NBA season, air ball. At the Boston Garden, I nudge Jim Paxson next to me. I'm like, what the heck was that? He's like, just wait, just wait, just wait and watch. Next time down the floor, I see Larry tell Dennis Johnson, call the same play. He calls the same play. He comes off the same screen from Robert Parrish, catches the ball in the same spot, same two steps, jumps off the right leg, left-hand hook again from 12 feet swish. Hmm. And Jim Paxson just elbows me and says, see, I told you. And I was like, he didn't do the first one on purpose, did he? He goes, no. He goes, but he just has the ultimate confidence that no matter what happens, the next one's going in. I was like, that's incredible. And so Larry went for 36 points on opening night, and nine boards and six assists. We beat the Bucks, and, you know, we were off to the races. So hmm. um, he's... Uh, I had enough, uh, let's just say, brash and confidence in myself the first week of practice to challenge Larry to a game of, not horse, but a, sh a game of shooting. 
And so it was like horse. We called it follow the leader. And so you would shoot from various spots. If you made the shot and the guy behind you missed the shot, he had to repeat the same shot. Make or miss, he had to repeat the same shot. But if you made and he missed, you had control of the next shot. But if you missed and he made, he got a point and he had the control of the next shot. So it was kind of like horse. But whereas in horse, if you miss, he then takes control. You didn't get control and the guy missed and you made. In a nutshell, it's a fun game. And so I grabbed Larry. This was my game in college. And I beat everybody on my team in college. And I said, Larry, you want to shoot after practice? He's like, what do you mean? I said, well, let me show you this game. It's pretty fun. So I played him, and in 40 minutes, it took 40 minutes for me to get up four points on him. That's what we called game. I beat him. And the next day, we did it again, and I beat him. And the next day, he beat me. And the next day, I beat him. And the next day, I beat him. So the first five days of my NBA journey, I beat Larry at this shooting game. We're shooting all threes, 20-footers and beyond. No trick shots, just shooting. I beat him four of the first five in the first week. Day six is a Saturday. He comes to practice. I've never seen somebody so ticked off in all my life. And he says, rookie, he goes, we're going to play that game the rest of the season every day after practice. I said, great, bring it on. Like now I've won four out of five. I'm thinking there's no way he can take me down. And he goes, every shot is worth $50 and we're keeping track the rest of the way. So I don't know what $50 is worth. 40 years ago or 35 years ago, but you can imagine, right? Let's just say it's worth $500 today. So I was a rookie. I'm the least paid player on the team. He's a veteran. He's the most paid player on the team. He made 12 times as much as I made. And he literally, Shad, kept track of every shot the rest of the season. He had a little notebook after practice. I'm up, you know, four shots on Smitty. Uh, I'm up four more the next day. I'm up four more the next day. So you can imagine what that is, right? That was $600. So on the next road trip, when they gave us our per diem, he tapped me on the shoulder because he sat next to me. He goes, hey, by the way, you're down 450 bucks. And I'd reach into my envelope of money for a 12-day road trip, and I'd hand him 450 and say, crap. You know, I'm eating McDonald's the rest of the trip. But talk about competitive fire. He was not going to lose after that. And if I tell you I won four of the first five, it's absolute truth. But if I tell you he won 80% of the rest of the games the rest of the season, it's also absolute truth. He was not going to be outdone, certainly by a rookie. But I just learned from him how to have confidence. Like I told you before, confidence is not faked. You got to earn it. And he earned it every day. And then he earned it also verbally. Like when he walked on the court, he convinced everyone, our team and the other team, by minute three, who was the best player. He did that through his actions, through his words, and he just backed it up. And uh, I'll say this. If I had one game and my life depended upon it, no, I'm going back. Granted, I've played a year with Magic Johnson. I played three years with Larry, and I played against Michael. So those are the three best in my era. Mm -hmm. I realized there's Kobe later, there's LeBron now, there's Steph now, and there's other greats along the way, and there's other greats before. But if I had a seven-game series 
and I get to pick my first choice of anyone in the world, I'm picking Michael Jordan as my first choice. That's my teammate. Seven game series. But if I have one game, one game, and whatever you want to put on the line, my life, you know, my children, my savings, my house, whatever, one game, I'm taking a healthy Larry Bird. Hmm. That's how good he was. Yeah, that's quite the statement. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking time with us on the Sportlight Podcast today. I just want to ask you a few things. First of all, tell us the name of your podcast. It's called the Sports Parenting Podcast. You can awesome. find it out there under that, the Sports Parenting Podcast. The actual title is The Blood, Sweat, the Blood and Sweat of Sports Parenting, okay. BSSP. But you could, if you just typed in a search, the Sports Parenting Podcast. We have some great episodes, you know, from aforementioned Dale Murphy, uh, Clyde Drexler, um, Tony Finau one week, his father the next, Jim Nance one week, some really great, phenomenal guests. And I think you'll really love it. If you're a parent, you got kids and you're teaching them how to play sports or how to navigate that journey, we, we've received a lot of insight from some really great people. Clyde Drexler was awesome. That's cool. That's great. And then also, uh, tell us about Cardio Miracle, something that you're working on right now. I am. Uh, it's a product I've been taking and a product I work with. It has, I think, the best ingredients of any one supplement anywhere that I've ever tried. I, I've always been into fitness. So um, it, it, I don't know how I could say this uh, in the best way. I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, but you, you cannot get the proper amounts of arginine in your diet, through your diet. You just can't. And the levels of nitric oxide you need in your body and arginine to, for your blood to flow freely, for your oxygen to be there, for the viscosity of your blood to be at its optimum, you can't get that through anything except something taken orally. And Cardio Miracle has really knocked it out of the park. It's a powder substance. You mix it with water. I put it in a big flask like that. And, you know, I'll drink one in the morning and one at night. And it's kind of my like, it's kind of like my go-to. And it's super easy. It dissolves in there. It's great tasting. Has this citrusy fruit taste. And so I'll like take that with me in the gym in the morning. And then that's my go-to at night. And I feel fantastic. So it has beets in it, has all these ingredients. Their founder, John Hewlett, has crafted this formula that's just unbeatable. And it does have the necessary arginine nitric oxide. And so here I am at 58. I feel fantastic. Inflammation gone. I don't hurt when I wake up. I should ache, right? I'm 58. There's a lot of mileage on these knees and this back, especially as amount of, the amount of golf I play. And I don't. And I don't hurt when I play those things. And so... I think it's super cool. So I'm kind of going to bat for them and want to help people make aware. It's if you just think about like the number one killer of women in the Western world is coronary artery disease. And this, I mean, I couldn't say the wrong thing like this prevents it, but this, it negates a lot of those biomarkers that are going the wrong way for you. It just promotes heart health, capillary cleansing, and arterial strength and that's at my age i know that's what you need yeah. well awesome 
Well, Mike, thank you so much. We love having you involved in our program. We love your thoughts and the way you think and love teaming up together to do some good. So thanks so much for taking time today on the Sportlight Podcast. Chad, I'm most grateful. And uh, you know this already, but when I moved to town, I was looking for something to wrap my time and efforts around. And when I became acquainted with yourself and Dustin and the efforts and the mission and the cause of E4A, or especially for athletes, I knew instantly it was the one that aligned most genuinely with me. So uh, I find myself every day, if I go through the car wash, go to the grocery store, I'm asking young kids, what makes them different? What, what, what's your special gift? What's your talent? What are you good at? And some of them will look at me and say, I'm not good at anything. And I'll say, oh, come on. And I'll get it out of them. Others right away, instantly. And my next question is, are you able to share that with others? You know, I, I just, I feel there's such a need in the world today to, to lift and help others, especially the youth who will be our leaders of tomorrow. And so I love what you guys do. Uh, I love that you go to high schools and mentor these kids who can have an impact on other kids their age, and we can stop bullying, and we can stop, you know, depression, and we can stop some of these ailments that uh, really are prevalent in today and, and, and make everyone find that happy reason to live and get back. So thank you for having me. What a treat. And you guys do great work. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for joining the Sportlight Podcast. Like it and share it. And as always, keep your eyes up and do the work. This has been the Sportlight Podcast from Especially for Athletes, sponsored by Coca-Cola. You can learn more about Especially for Athletes by visiting the website at especiallyforathletes.org. You can also learn more about the book, The Sportlight, by Shad Martin and Dustin Smith at especiallyforathletes.org slash book.